Hi everyone, it's me, Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and I am in the cave of literary fabulosity. I'm like a dragon who sleeps on top of book treasures, uh, which is both a charming and yet a disturbing image. Uh, today, I'm with Emily XR Pan. She is the truly delightful author of The Astonishing Color of After, which I so encourage you to read, but first please plan ahead and acquire a large family size Kleenex or tissue of your choice. I have one of the hardest hearts in the Western or Northern hemispheres, and I cried like a little baby reading this story. Welcome, Emily. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is your first novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's received quite a reception with starred reviews from Booklist and PW and Voya, which I'm sure is gratifying for you. It's amazing. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about Lee and her story? So Lee believes that when her mom died by suicide, she turned into this giant red bird. And Lee goes to Taiwan to try to find the bird. Um, and along the way, she has to dig up all these family secrets. She connects with her grandparents, who she's never met, her Asian maternal grandparents, uh, and gets to learn their stories, even though there's a language barrier. She also has to reconcile the fact that on the day that her mother was dying, she was kissing her best friend and longtime crush for the very first time. So she has to deal with this really terrible thing happening at the same time as this thing that she's wanted for so long, and this awful event ends up driving them apart, her and Axel, her best friend, and it takes the healing to bring them back together again. That is a really good description of this book, but it is so much more. It has so much aboutness packed into it. One of the things that I really get excited about in a Hawaii novel is a book that really goes to these very deep emotions that teens are feeling in a very convoluted, uh, complex way, often for the very first time in their complexity because that added layer of adulthood. So let's focus on two of these, grief and guilt. I know, small topics, small topics. <laughs> let's start with grief a little bit because I think it's almost more the easier emotion mm -hmm. to deal with in this case, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I understand death by suicide of her mother, but what, what are the many griefs that Lee is dealing with in here. And why was that important for you to bring out in this story? I think some of it is she's missing this huge component of her life that was never answered by her mother. She doesn't have this connection to her heritage and she's always wanted it. And her mother has, for some reason, always pushed her away from it, kept her behind a barrier, walled off from her grandparents walled off from the Chinese and Taiwanese American culture that's a part of her innately. So Lee has always wanted to understand that better and with the death of her mother also feels like the death of this connection to a part of her own identity. That grief results in even more of a drive for her to figure out who she is and where she comes from and why her mother lived this secretive life. It's interesting to me to think about parents as our past, but also our future. Yeah. Because they're resources for building our future. Right. And you understand so much about yourself from your parents as you grow. And I think when you're 
a teenager, sometimes you can be a little bit resentful of that. Like you don't want that person there who seems to know so much more than you. You're resentful of the fact that they know more and you want to believe that you know more than they do. But when there's that connection missing, when there's that that gap there in Lee's identity and she's her mother is literally preventing her from making the connection, I think it is very frustrating. There's also that element as we grow older, and I suppose this is like the moment we're actually adults, is that we're able to accept our own parents' privacy. We have that feeling of ownership of them, of our parents, and then just realizing mm-hmm. that we don't own them. They are their own persons. Right. So there's the grief of that losing that primary relationship with mom, grief over losing that source of information and that resource, the, the grief of the possibilities of the future, the grief of the past that she didn't know about. Absolutely. But you were talking about resentfulness, and with resentfulness comes guilt. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about guilt. Yeah, so Lee is dealing with, well, obviously she's guilty because when someone dies by suicide, the immediate thought is what's to blame or who's to blame. And it's so easy to think, oh, what have I done wrong? Lee immediately is wondering what could anybody have done to have prevented the suicide? And how did Lee not notice? Lee did notice that her mother was sort of crumbling, that her mom was struggling at times. She would have these periods of intense inner pain where she just became almost dead to the world. She just would lie there silent, not eating anything, curled up in a dark room. And Lee couldn't quite understand it as anything other than just that her mother was unwell. And so retroactively, Lee has that wondering of, should those have been warning signs that she took more seriously? Because they came so frequently that they became Mm -hmm. normalized for her. And then at the same time, Lee's dealing with the guilt of, you know, was she a good enough daughter? Not even just the question of noticing her mom's symptoms enough, but was she enough for her mom? And she's also dealing with the guilt of things that have expectations that her father has had for her and how that all plays together. That gets a little bit more complicated because she and her father have this conflict where he doesn't want her to be pursuing art all the time. He wants her to take on something more practical. And he has a bit of conflict with her mom, too, her mom, who has always been so supportive of all this art that she does. So for her to push up against her father and be like, this is what I want to do, and that sort of letting that become the primary concern for her is another form of distraction from noticing her mother's needs. There's all this sort of push and pull between what is the greater loyalty. And, and so many conflicting layers of that loyalty to oneself, loyalty to one's future, loyalty to one's family, mm-hmm. loyalty to mom versus dad. Let's be honest, we're always as children picking between the two <laughs> of them and repicking every single time. Mm-hmm. What were the things that you did in writing this story to balance all those competings? Because we've spoken of grief and guilt in two very big ways, but as we see, they're just all sorts of little to medium things, even within each other. There's many griefs in this book, and there's many guilts within the book. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the guilt of pleasure yet. But there's all sorts of these. How did you as a writer navigate presenting these 
in a way that you felt organic and natural to you to the story. It's so funny when people basically ask how I do something because I feel incapable of reverse engineering my own book to sort of present the craft side mm -hmm. of it. I would say that I really tried to do it by layers. I told the story first, the basic story of, you know, the mom dying, the mom turning into a bird, Lee's journey to try to find her. And then I knew that that was complicated by her relationship with her best friend. And so then I layered that on. And then I knew that I wanted, needed really for her to have this really tight relationship with her mom, this important relationship that was also complicated by questions of identity and so then I went and layered that in and then I knew that to make the tension really work I needed her and her father to have additional conflict and so then I went and layered that in so I don't know that I was so conscious of it when I was doing the first few drafts mm -hmm. it was more like I was problem solving and identifying this is what the book is lacking this is what is going to make these elements more successful. So how can I go back through and weave in more threads of it? Did you have a feeling of satisfaction that you got to recognize through this process? You mean satisfaction with the With what the you were result? doing, yeah. Did you get to points? I mean, I'm fascinated by how authors know they're done. <laughs> and, I, and I understand that's a relative thing because are you ever really <laughs> right. done? But, I laughed because I don't feel like I'm done with the book. But did you, were you able to recognize moments along the way with this process of layering that you're like, this satisfies the vision or this meets the need? Was that, was that a particular moment that you felt it or a particular signal that you got from yourself that you had achieved what you wanted? There were a few spikes of that. Um, there's this really amazing Ira Glass quote about how when you first start creating, you have impeccable taste and you know what you're shooting for and it takes so long to bridge that gap between what you actually produce and what you wish for it to be. And so he always encourages young creatives to just keep producing, keep working, keep making stories again and again because it's only from repeatedly starting and finishing something that you can improve incrementally to reach the point of starting to bridge that gap. And I'd, I'd written, this is my first novel being published, but I'd written many drafts of many other novels, full-length novels, before getting to this book. And this was the first time that I started to see myself bridging the gap. And so I lost track of how many drafts of this book I wrote. Every draft I rewrote basically from scratch. So it was quite a process. It started in 2010. But when I sat down to write the version that became this book, the opening pages just sort of spilled out and they're relatively unchanged. And I remember sitting in my kitchen, reading those pages to my husband and feeling this thrill because I recognized that for the first time I was reaching the same sort of peak that I was aiming for. And there were multiple spikes, as I said before, in the process of writing this when I would add in a layer or I would write a scene that was a very crucial scene and I didn't even know how crucial it was until after I had written it and I would sit back and reread and it would feel very right in a way that was very satisfying. It sounds like this was a very energetic process intellectually, psychologically, emotionally as well as you know fingers typing or <laughs> writing longhand. Yes. Um, did you discover anything about your thoughts on grief or guilt 
that you did not appreciate about yourself before. It doesn't mean that this book is an emotional bio autobiography by any means, but there, there has to be something very, I always think of this as an intimate process that reveals you to yourself in a way. It reveals for a writer that, you know, knowing that that came out of your mind. I guess what is maybe not exact, sort of along the lines of what you're saying, but maybe not exactly quite the same thing. The story came out of a very personal experience. I mean, I had been writing this book for many years. And then in 2014, I lost my aunt to suicide. And when I sat down about seven months later to rewrite this book from scratch, it became very much influenced by that suicide. There had never been a suicide in the book before. I'd written many versions of the book beforehand where the mother just dies of like pneumonia or something. And when it became about my aunt, the entire shape of the rest of the book changed. All of it became, with, without my intending to, it became this very personal, experiential thing that was, much of it was based on my own experiences growing up in a family affected by depression. Much of it was based on stories that I'd heard from my parents about the side of my family where there have been a lot of difficulties and a lot of mental illness. And all of it became this thing that I was exploring and not even realizing. And this complicated thing happened when my aunt died, where I felt like I was not allowed to grieve for her. Mm. My family is spread out all over the place, but my aunt was based uh, in the Midwest, and my, I hadn't seen her in years. And I'd spoken to her on the phone quite regularly over these years, but I hadn't seen her face-to-face -face in years due to, you know, logistics and financial things that just prevented us from getting together. And my parents, who were trying to relieve me of the burden of grief, told me that I shouldn't be grieving for her. And that, I think, maybe there's like a cultural clash there they didn't understand that I needed to grieve for her and and then when I went to the they didn't even want me to attend the funeral they thought that it would I was too busy it would be too much of my time being spent and so they were like you don't need to come you can just live your life and I was like no I need to go to that funeral and I went and my cousins were there and I also hadn't seen my cousins from forever and I also had this complicated feeling of like I'm there weeping at this funeral because I felt very close to my aunt, even if my parents didn't perceive me as feeling close to my aunt. And I wondered if my cousins would feel like it was weird that I was grieving. If, like, if my parents thought that, I wondered if my cousins would feel the same. And so I felt very much like I had to sort of hide myself away and try not to grieve and that inevitably is is not very healthy and makes things worse and so when I was writing this book it was a way of shedding that imposter syndrome mm. and being allowed to grieve privately in a space that was very sacred to me where it was just me and the words that I was writing and it was me exploring very deeply and closely more closely than um, my actual relationship with my aunt since Lee is her mother's daughter. Mm -hmm. But that was very, um, I'm forgetting the word, cathartic. That yeah. was very cathartic for me. That's interesting to me because there is this debate that happens um, 
within the larger culture. I think there's an acceptance that there are negative, powerfully, I don't want to be accurate about this. What in the larger culture can be understood as negative emotions? And that grief is a negative emotion and that teens should, you know, they should be uplifted and they should be happy and they should be <clears throat> untroubled as long as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, which on the day that we're recording this, we know is not realistic. Right. But do you think of this book as affording an opportunity to experience grief or an opportunity to process grief? For the reader, it can be that private space. Yeah. For whatever that grief is that they're experiencing. I think so. Were there particular books when you were a YA reader that modeled this for you? I said modeled. Oh, sorry, guys. But you know what I mean. Were, there, were those refuge books where you could experience those emotions in that private way as a reader? I'm trying to think because YA did not exist in the same breadth that it exists today. Okay, then we'll then reader. we'll move out from but, a YA book. But you as yeah. a as a as a YA age reader, I remember reading Where the Red Fern Grows when I was 10 years old mm -hmm. and weeping uncontrollably over that book. Not just because I have a love of dogs, but also because the idea of that loss was so unimaginable to me. And yet, at the same time, not totally unimaginable because a few years before that, I had lost my grandfather on my dad's side. And this is, again, showing how weird my family gets about grief. They did not tell me that he had passed away uh, for like a month because they didn't want to ruin my birthday, I guess. But then also they sort of made it seem like this very casual thing that had happened. And for years after that, I sort of, I would think back on it and feel very weird about it and feel like, am I not supposed to grieve because they thought that it wasn't worth me grieving or something? And so when I, when I read Where the Red Friend Grows, it was, it was this, a similar catharsis of I'm allowed to cry because it's not something happening to me and nobody is giving me permission or taking away permission for me to experience this grief. Mm -hmm. So these powerful books, these can be a way for teens, for readers to own, take ownership so. and agency of their emotions. I think so. Huh. I think to be allowed to grieve for something, whether it's fictional or not, is important for us to understand our emotions. Mm -hmm. Too often grief is something that, uh, grief is something that gets tucked away, um, almost like a shameful type mm -hmm. of feeling. Nobody thinks it's shameful, but people protect it like it's something shameful. People hide away and have trouble having conversations around it. And this leads back to the guilt, because are we being who other folks think we should be? Are right. we acceptable? Right. Now, <clears throat> I'm old. This is known. And uh, in the 70s, there was a woman named Irma Bombeck. I know you don't know who this is, and it's very sad to me because she was a very funny woman, and uh, she wrote once a book called The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. She just That's had a, a newspaper title. column of just like truisms, and one of the best things she ever said is guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm always fascinated by portrayals of guilt, particularly in YA literature, because that is a unique moment where you are trying to kick away the traces. The characters are trying to kick away the traces to decide their own adulthood and 
so much moral responsibility of those choices and how that shows up in literature mm -hmm. is fascinating to me. So in reading The Astonishing Color, just thinking, I got very fascinated by the grief part, but also by the guilt of, of Lee taking ownership of her own emotions, giving herself permission mm -hmm. to take ownership and, and say, no, I'm not going to have guilt, which is a very adult thing to do. Yeah. It's hard to give gifts back, but <laughs> sometimes you gotta. Yeah. Sharing is caring, but sometimes not sharing is caring more. <laughs> so I'm, I'm intrigued by Lee and that pa her passage to adulthood of, of embracing grief, but then rejecting guilt. I'm going to have to read this book again because there, there's a lot in it. <laughs> that was also something specific that I wanted to focus on in the context of depression, because so often, going back again to the idea that when someone dies by suicide, there must be a reason, there must be someone to blame or something to blame, people don't want to accept that depression is an illness that kills. Mm -hmm. People don't want to talk about it. There's a terrible stigma around it. So it was really important to me that Lee be able to push away that guilt as an example of accepting that this is something that happens as a result of depression. And th that mm -hmm. depression is a very real and dangerous illness yeah. that people face. And yet this is a beautifully hopeful book, or I suppose, and, and it, because of all this, it's a beautifully hopeful book. I don't think it's an easy book, which congratulations to you for being willing to do the not easy book. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I don't know that it was intentional more intentional more than just needed no but it's where the book needed to go yeah I always appreciate particularly a YA novel because there seems to be so much adult anxiety about YA lit these days but I love a YA book that will that accepts its own logic its own emotional logic its own plot logic its own psychological logic mm -hmm. even if it makes us feel me as as the reader a bit uncomfortable mm -hmm. i imagine as a teenager i i kind of would have had a lot of impatience with this book but then i would have secretly reread it constantly over a period of eight or ten months <laughs> until it fell apart and i needed a new copy <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna ask you one last question because there are moments where just the language is so beautiful do you compose orally or in writing Oh, I feel like I can't think orally. I have to, I almost have to think with my fingers. Okay. And so I, I write silently in my head. And sometimes I'll pause and read things out loud to hear the music of it. I also am a musician and have a musical background, which you sort of sense from the book as Lee's mom is a pianist and Lee's best friend also composes music. And so those were things that definitely played into the language sonically. Now, I don't want you to answer this question out loud. Okay. But Lee is such a haunting character. Do you have an idea for where Lee is in 10 years? You don't have to answer that question. But I just, I can't, I can't quit Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to think at least somewhere, even if it's in like a tiny corner of your mind, Lee is still there doing things. We'll just okay. So I asked a question she can't answer, or I didn't want her to answer, and that's probably not a good way to end the podcast. But we're gonna do it anyway. 
Emily, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about this, the astonishing color of after. I just thank you for having me. I so adore this book. Oh, thank you. It means so much. It really does. Listeners out there in the virtual universe, this has been Victoria Stapleton for the Little Brown School and Library podcast. With me has been Emily XR Pan, author of The Astonishing Color of After, which is truly an astonishingly good book. One that you should get at your library or bookstore now, please. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.